Hi, and welcome to the Slush Podcast. As you probably know, Slush is the world's leading startup event. You're about to hear an interview conducted at Slush 2017 on the Founders Studio stage, where the biggest names in tech sit down for an intimate Q&A. Seth Bannon could be called a Slush veteran. He joined us for the third year in a row and talked with Linda Liukas about working as social investor through his seed fund 50 years. I'm going to ask the same question as I started the last session with, uh, where does the name 50 uh, years come from? Uh, it comes from a phenomenal essay uh, written in 1931 by Winston Churchill called 50 Years Hence. Uh, I, I normally don't like people on the phones, but now you can Google this or like save it for <laughs> later. It's an amazing essay. You really should read it. Read it. He 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 has just absolutely incredible foresight on the technological trends that will change the world. Some of these things are just coming into fruition now, and he also implores people to really think about in a deep way the way they're contributing to society. And he paints this beautiful vision of the future and how technology can bring it about. So 50 years hence. Google it, read the essay. It's amazing. So Winston Churchill, Hall, I know that you have a background in politics, and now you're uh, you've worked with startups and, and investment. Uh, like, where do you see technology being the most powerful lever of change at the moment? Is it healthcare or is it uh, food? Um, where you're seeing the most change? I almost think about it the other way around, where it's like, where is technology not a great lever for change? So my, my background was in political organizing. So I, I worked for President Obama in, in 2008 and worked for many other politicians. And uh, so that was sort of how, when I was growing up, I thought you created positive change. And the more I learned about that space, the more frustrated I became. Things move incredibly slowly. Uh, as soon as you get elected to office, you've got to start worrying about getting reelected to office. And so you have very little time to actually implement your, your policy changes. And the more I learned about technology and business and saw how quickly the adoption of new technologies uh, have taken off in, in the past, the more excited I became about uh, that as a, as, as, a, uh, as, as a lever for positive change. And so I think that there are still some, some things that require uh, either governments or NGOs to solve. There are some things where there will just never be a, a profit margin that's possible. But I think basically any issue where you can both solve the problem and somehow make a profit doing it is better suited to be solved through technology business. So what are the most underutilized uh, like industries right now with technology? Uh, I think that the food system is just broken from, from top to bottom. Um, in, in developing countries, uh, people are not able to afford the nutrition that they need. And in developed countries, like my home country, the United States, if you go into a supermarket, most of what you see is 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 poison. It's it's sugary, carby things that have very little nutrition. And so we have, for the first time ever uh, in the United States, a, a people getting sick from food abundance. This has never happened before. So let's do a follow-up from that question. Uh, Malnutrition, not not like oversupply of bad food. How would you tackle the malnutrition most efficiently in Nigeria? This is a question that comes from Henry. What would be your three steps towards this goal? Yeah, so I am no uh, expert on Nigeria, but uh, I I think that one of the the biggest problems in the food system is the availability of uh, cheap, healthy proteins. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity using technology to produce food more efficiently. So uh, I talked about in my, in my, in my uh, speech 
a company called Memphis Meats, which is actually culturing meat, so they're growing real meat without the animals. Uh, right now it's very expensive, but the costs uh, are dropping. We've looked at a few companies that are using mycoproteins, so literally mushrooms, fungus, to actually grow uh, 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 protein in, in a very cheap and sustainable way. And there are now a lot of companies that are using insects to actually provide healthy protein cheaply. So I think that there's a number of different uh, ways of going about that. I also think uh, as verti either vertical or indoor farming technologies um, are advancing, this is an amazing solution to drive down the costs uh, of actually producing uh, fresh vegetables and, and lettuce and things like that that, that people need. I'm going to do a follow-up question on that also, again from the audience. On Hendrik here is asking, how do you see synthetic biology combining with other, te other tech like chemical engineering solving problems for impact and profit? So uh, synthetic biology is one of the fields that we are just most excited about. Um, it used to be that if you were going to found a synthetic biology company, you needed to raise $5 million on day one and build out a full wet lab to actually start your experiments. Uh, now you can actually, on a, on a budget that's very similar to what you would raise for a SaaS company, say a million dollar, two million dollar seed budget, you can actually get from idea to product being produced in, using synthetic biology. Because of things like shared wet labs or the ability to run experiments over uh, an API on someone else's laboratory or things like CRISPR dropping the costs of, of sequencing. And so we're super excited about synthetic biology in general. And I think it's particularly interesting where it interfaces with computation. So a lot of what you used to have to do uh, in a wet lab and actually run experiments that take many weeks and where you have PhDs just pipetting, you can now do computationally. And so we think the intersection of computation and synthetic biology offers a tremendous uh, area for impact. We have so many great questions about food, so let's keep on, on this topic before jumping to other, um, other, other areas. Food being such a personal issue for many people, how do we convince the masses to adopt sustainable protein sources? And maybe like you being a vegan, like maybe you can talk from your personal experience also. Uh, I got to tell you, I didn't eat breakfast, so this is a very painful <laughs> line of questioning. Um, so the question was, how do we convince people to adopt sustainable sources of protein? Um, I am I am a, a vegan. I, I gave up eating meat when I was 12, and uh, I, I you know I, I do it both for environmental reasons and for animal welfare reasons. And I have never shied away from trying to convince my friends that they should also be a vegetarian or vegan. And I think, and I, I would I'm somewhat persuasive. And over my entire life, I think I've convinced maybe eight people, which is not very good considering that my friends are literally captive audiences, right? Like, and I know how to speak to them. We share the same ideals. So to answer the question, I've more or less given up on education as a means of convincing people to eat or buy their food more sustainably. I think the real solution is to give them the products that they love that are tastier, healthier, and cheaper. Because then they don't actually have to make a choice, right? Then they just do what they've been doing, but you swap out an unsustainable input with a sustainable input, and everybody's happy. Beautiful. Um, let me see. Maybe. Uh, let's start to segue away from the food topic. Um, could you tell us about the other areas like clean meat we could launch companies in for similar animal and environmental impact, leather, feathers, etc.? And this is also an audience question. After this question, we'll open up the floor also if you just want to raise your hand and ask questions. So I would say that the single space that I'm most excited about is actually the intersection of food tech and synthetic biology. Um, and it's, it's called cellular agriculture. 
It's a term that many of you probably haven't heard yet. I think you're going to hear a lot more about it over the next decade. Um, and basically, there's a new crop of companies that are saying, okay, we're functionally using animals as pieces of technology to make products that we love. What if we could make those same products, oftentimes replicating the same biological processes happening inside the animal, just outside the animal? So we've uh, personally invested in a company doing it for meat. This is Memphis Meats. We've invested in a company doing it for leather. So they're actually making real leather, real skin, um, just without animals. Uh, we've invested in a company doing it for gelatin. So right now, gelatin is a product that's in a lot of food that makes it kind of chewy. And it's currently made by throwing the remains of an animal into a giant acid vat. And you let it sit in the acid vat for two weeks, and the bones kind of sink to the bottom, and the hair dissolves. And then the middle layer, after a couple weeks, is extracted and put into gummy bears and marshmallows and all sorts of yummy things. And so this company is just making gelatin recombinantly using synthetic biology. And we've invested in a company doing it for milk proteins. So this company, uh, the, the, the sort of, if you look at the market trends for nut-based milks, so non-dairy milks, they're, they're taking off. But people aren't very satisfied with these milks because they don't have the same taste profile or functional profile of actual milk. So they've uh, modified soy to actually express milk proteins so that you can have non-dairy milk that actually has the taste and functional properties of milk. So cellular agriculture, it's a super exciting field. So I'm, I'm going to ask one more question from here because it's been upvoted quite a few times and, and it has to do with uh, everything you just explained. VCs are usually scared of deep tech, especially after clean tech failures. And this question comes from Ben. How do you approach early stage science risks, especially as you have a small team and, and you're seeing a lot of different ideas? How do you assess these um, ideas? So uh, just on the clean tech thing, I, I, I really believe that people tend to overlearn from mistakes. So when, when you know, we see that the, the clean tech thing boomed and then busted, and then everyone's like, oh, I'm never going to do clean tech again, that's when we're like, oh, maybe we should be looking at clean tech now. Um, but and so in terms of, of the type of investing we do, so we invest in deep technology companies. And so essentially what we're doing is we're trading market risk for technical risk. So investors often think in terms of risk, right? So they say, okay, here's the opportunity. If everything goes really well, wow, that would be amazing. But there's a number of risks that might prevent the team from getting there. And oftentimes, when you're looking at a SaaS company, it's very clear the tool could be built. But there's huge market risk, right? Will users use this? Will they like it? Will they ever pay money for it? Will some other competitor come? With deep tech companies, you're often trading all of those risks for technical risks, right? So for Memphis Meats, if they're able to create super cheap, healthy, sustainable meat, they will have people buying it. There's just no, there's no question there, right? Um, and so then the question just becomes, can you de-risk the technology? And so that can be very difficult. So I you know, don't have a degree in synthetic biology myself. And so we rely on a network of advisors um, to help us do our diligence. So typically the way we diligence a deep tech company is we have a, an entrepreneur who has a PhD in their discipline, who is maybe three years uh, farther along down the road than the entrepreneurs that we're diligencing. And we introduce the younger entrepreneur to the more experienced entrepreneur who does the technical diligence. And the reason we do it this way is because I was an entrepreneur myself before running the fund. And the one thing I hate doing is wasting uh, entrepreneurs' time because it's super scarce. When you're an entrepreneur, you have 20 things to do and enough time to do 10. And so we like every touch point that we have to be value add. And when you introduce a young entrepreneur to the more experienced entrepreneur, that more experienced entrepreneur could become a mentor, they could introduce them to potential customers, they could introduce them to more investors, and so it's actually value add for the young entrepreneur. And then the more experienced entrepreneurs, the really good ones love to know what's happening at the cutting edge of their field, so they're happy to, to take the, the intro. And then for us, we're able to not only get the sort of technical insight, 
But oftentimes, an entrepreneur in this space is able to say, yes, you know, while it's technically possible, what they don't know is that when they need to scale up to the 50,000 liter fermenter size, there's no fermenters available. Um, and so they can often give pragmatic insight that I say pure PhD in academia uh, cannot. So one more follow-up question on this, uh, on sort of technical risk and, and assessing it. Someone here is asking, is blockchain impact? I can't find any blockchain investment on your website. What's your thinking around this space intersecting with impact? S super excited about blockchain. I uh, wrote an article in TechCrunch a while ago about the DAOs, the Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. For the, I don't know if, you, if any of you are in the blockchain space, but uh, on the Ethereum blockchain, there was something called the DAO that was launched, and it was the first fully decentralized autonomous organization. And it, it raised uh, $150 million and then uh, got hacked and lost a ton of it, and it was a huge disaster. And um, it was funny. We actually, uh, I, when the project got announced, I was super excited about it, uh, largely because it, it enables a democratization of... Uh, the economy. Right now, uh, most of the value created by the economy is only in the hands of a very few number of people. So if you look at wealth inequality, it's increasing. And these distributed autonomous organizations might allow that wealth creation to be spread more evenly among a lot more people. And so we were very excited about it. So we, uh, I reached out with Ella to the, the, the founders of the DAO. And they, we, we were in Berlin, and they lived in this town called Mittweide, uh, in, in Germany, which was like two hours away, and we were like, can we come visit you? They're like, no one comes to visit Midvida. And so uh, Christoph uh, Jensch and his, his brother, we went and we met them on the day that it launched. And they were kind of like nervous, and we were like, are you okay? And they said like, well, you know, we just launched this DAO, and it's, it's already raised $3 million, and I don't know, at this pace, it could raise $10 million. And, you know, we did a security audit, but we don't know if we did a $10 million security audit. And then it ended up raising $150 million and, and got hacked, and they were very sad about that. But, yeah, I'm very interested in blockchain. I think it's a really hard space to invest in right now because it's so easy to do an ICO, an initial coin offering, uh, and raise a ton of money uh, that I think everything is just massively inflated, right? So there are literally people who, over the course of a weekend, will write a white paper, launch it, and raise a few million dollars. There was a recent case where someone did this and then ju they just disappeared, unclear if they were ever even real people. And, and so what that means as a venture investor, we're trying to prove that you can only invest in companies that are solving these big problems and have great financial returns. Because we want to inspire a bunch of other investors who are just purely greedy capitalists to also invest in these important companies. And I think it's really hard to do that in blockchain right now. Although we're huge supporters of this space and think it will be tremendously impactful. Beautiful. Okay, audience, anyone has a question they want to ask aloud, please, raise of hands. Okay, here in the front row, please. Question is, do we cooperate with governments? Yeah. Right now, not, not really. I mean, so, I mean, my partner Ella is advising the European Commission on their tech policy. Uh, if, if the administration in the United States was a different one, I would probably, you know, kind of advise them. I don't want, don't want to advise the current one. Um, but no, we're, I mean, we, we really believe that a lot of these problems can be solved simply through technology businesses. Um, and so I still believe in the, in the potential of politics to create great change. And, uh, you know, a, a part of me uh, will always sort of ha have a warm spot for that. Um, but no, largely we think that these entrepreneurs outside of governmental bodies can create uh, incredibly positive change. So we don't work that much with governments. Cool. Anyone else wants to ask a question? When you're, uh, when you're looking at impact and trying to assess the impact that uh, various investments will have, what sort of framework do you use or what questions do you ask to try to create some sort of 
univariate idea of impact, you know, how, how do you actually sort of convert uh, causes into something that you can compare against each other? Uh, yeah, so this was uh, a hard question for us because um, the, the word uh, impact, especially in Silicon Valley, can be meaningless. Everyone's having big impact, right? You know, someone's like, oh, we're having a big impact. It's like, oh, what are you doing? And they're like, we're building a new ad technology. And it's like, oh, geez. And so we thought it was very important from day one to really define very clearly what we meant by impact. And so we actually started to sort of list out all the world's biggest problems ourselves and found, A, that that was like a really hard endeavor. And then B, started to realize that it looked sort of very, you know, similar to something else we'd seen. And then we realized that, you know, the UN had spent uh, millions of dollars and many years sort of listing out the world's biggest problems. And so we actually adopt the UN Sustainable Development Goals as our list of what the big problems in the world are. We have some sort of modifications that we make. Um, I, think, I think it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good starting point. Um, and then in terms of what we look for, we're, we're largely, you know, looking for the potential for impact, the potential for, you know, massive profit. And then we want founders that genuinely care about both of those things, right? So we don't want founders that are uh, just, you know, goody two-shoes who want to do good but don't have an interest in building a business. Because, again, we're trying to prove that you can have great financial returns here. And we don't want people that are coincidentally running a business that could have great impact but don't actually care about the impact. Because then, you know, oftentimes you have to pivot. They might pivot into something that's either neutral or, or negative. And so we really sort of want to know that the founder is really driven to solve some very important problem in the world. Does that answer your question? So I'll do a quick follow-up because there was a question around sort of the way your fund operates. In which stages do you guys invest? If a company has an interesting technology in lab size but needs investment to scale it up to industry size, can it make it? Yeah, so we invest at the seed stage. And so for us, we just want to see a product or prototype built. Um, and so for us, that's just our way of... It's really hard to know the difference between a great visionary and a great visionary who can build something. Uh, really hard. And so for us, the way we make sure that you can build something is that we like to see that you've actually built something. So the vast majority of our companies had no revenue. Um, only once did we make an exception to the no uh, product uh, or prototype built, but it was someone that we had sort of known for a very long time. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we, our fund invests uh, 500000 to a $1 million. Um, and then uh, very, very soon, uh, I can't announce the details yet, but we will have uh, a very interesting program specifically for scientists who are interested in commercializing technology. So if you're uh, working in an academic lab right now and you're interested in doing that, uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, I can't s say the details, but it's going to be very exciting. Beautiful. We have a bunch of audience questions on millennials and, and sort of creating meaningful lives. Uh, I'll ask these two questions because they got upvoted really well, uh, but I think you want to like, give one answer. So, Seth, what opportunities do you see in helping millennials create meaningful lives through their values, as a majority of them are frustrated at work? And then, how, what are the top three things that get millennials committed to their work? What type of conflicts will cause that cause with non-millennial employees and managers? So, motivating millennials and also leadership with millennials. Yep. So, uh, the, I think the number one difference between millennials and every other generation is the fact that millennials are very impact-driven. So, they, they care about the impact their consumer choices make, their investments make, and they really want their careers to have a positive impact. Um, and it's, it's just really different than every other generation. If you asked any other generation, like, what's the purpose of business, they would almost think it's a silly question. Like, of course the purpose of business is to make money. And then number two it would be maybe to, like, have status in society. 
And millennials just flip that on the head entirely. And they say, no, the purpose of business is to you know, protect the environment or solve societal problems. They also think it should make money, but that's the main driver. Um, and so millennials also are very growth oriented. So these studies show that millennials really want to know that they have the ability to grow in the, in, in the careers that they have. And they're also, they also value autonomy. So the ability to make their own decisions um, and follow their own passions more so than other generations. Um, I don't think it has to create conflict with, with, with managers, but who knows. Um, and then in terms of how do you motivate them, I think, or, or provide opportunities, I think the opportunities are actually there. Right? So th there are basically four things that everyone wants in a career. You want to work on interesting things with smart people that you like, you want to make money, and you want to do good. And you used to have to choose two, maybe three of those things, but now you can have all four because there are so many enterprises that are both making money and solving these, these big problems in the world. And so I think mainly the problem is just uh, letting millennials know that they don't have to make a sacrifice. That if you want all four of those things in your career, you can have them and you shouldn't sacrifice uh, and settle for anything less. Beautiful. We had an audience question from the front row, please. Hi, Seth. Um, you've spoken about synthetic biology, food tech, um, impact infrastructure. We haven't really covered EdTech. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that specific industry and where you think the future is for education technology companies. Yeah, so we're super interested in EdTech ed as um, a lever for impact. Uh, I think where we're more skeptical is how you create a massive business in EdTech. So we've come, so again, like, you know, we have the filter of potential for massive impact and potential for massive profit because we want to convince billions of dollars more to flow into this space. And we've, and for, uh, we've seen a lot of edtech companies that sort of check off the first box, but it's really hard to monetize edtech. And I don't think anyone's really figured that out yet, right? So it's really hard to get parents to pay. It's impossible to get kids to pay. You can sell to school systems, but they take forever. Uh, and they often have already signed a 10-year contract, and so you've got to wait for that to expire. And so um, in terms of what is exciting, I think uh, personalized learning is, is super exciting. So you know, using things like machine learning to tailor content specifically to a person to basically learn how they learn and then deliver them content in the right way. Um, but I'm still sort of waiting to find uh, the great business models in EdTech. Beautiful. I think we're almost out of time. So I'm going to ask one more question um, from the audience. How do you convince a more conservative business leader that business should be about profit plus impact and not just profits? And kind of a follow-up question on this, how do you measure your, your impact and the one of your portfolio, the impact that your portfolio generates? Yeah, so I'll take the second question first. So um, there are a number of impact measurement frameworks. None of them uh, are particularly good. We don't actually like any of them. We're, and so right now, we're sort of lucky in that uh, because we invest at such an early stage, it's almost impossible to measure the impact of any of our companies yet. So we know once they all start to mature, we're going to have to measure it. Otherwise, we're not going to know if we're doing what we want to be doing. Um, uh, but right now, we don't measure. Uh, my partner, Ella, has some really interesting ideas about actually how to use uh, like data collection and then uh, AI to, to figure out the like primary, secondary, and tertiary impacts of all the companies and then turn that into an impact score. So we'll definitely be building that out over the next few years. Um, and then how to convince conservative business leaders to embrace profit plus impact. Um, actually, it was super nice. Someone from Airbus, who I had met uh, a while ago, just found me in the back room. And he had, he had asked me this exact question uh, several months ago. And I told him that the best way of doing it is to just make the business argument. Show the, uh, during my talk, I, I, I gave some numbers on what millennials want in their careers. And they will not stay at the company if they're not given what they want. And what they want is impact. 
And you just simply cannot build a sustainable business without being able to attract and retain the top talent of tomorrow, which is millennials. And so I told him, show, show that Deloitte study. Deloitte did an amazing study about it. Show it to your senior people and just make the business case. And he just found me in, in the green room and said that he did that and it worked. So I think that's how you get these conservative business leaders to start thinking this way. Make the business case, and then once they start doing it, they'll feel so good about it, and they'll see the return so quickly that they won't be able to go back. Okay, I think we're out of time at this point. Thank you so much, Seth. Thank you so much, audience. Thanks, Linda. That was fun. Thanks for listening to the Slush Podcast. Find out more about Slush at slush.org. Please rate and review our podcast. And if you haven't yet done so, subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.